human beings have been very, very good about, we're good at talking about ourselves. But actually, we need to be better at telling stories about the other lives with which we share our planet. Because we are crew. We are the crew. We are the ones who are who are currently trying to steer and drive. But actually, we need to really, really pay attention to the stories of, of the other organisms that are down in the engine room uh, and in the passenger seats and tell their stories too. You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. Hello, welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dan. Um, this is episode 42. And uh, in this episode, I'm in conversation with writer, author and activist Nicola Davies. Um, now, I had the amazing opportunity to work with Nicola uh, last year on uh, the launch of an animation, um, an adaptation of her incredible book the promise um along with a schools and community screening campaign which uh i did through my work with wild labs and the wild network um now nicola it, trained as a zoologist um and uh became a children's author a prolific author she's written um i actually can't remember but we talk about this in the in the show but just an enormous amount of books that she's published um many of them exploring our connection to the to the natural world to the more than human world and and also uh, exploring environmental and and social issues through through her work um back in the day uh if you were uh, a child of uh, you grew up in the 80s uh or i was, well, I was born in the 70s but grew up in the 80s um nicola you might know nicola uh she was a co-presenter of the kids tv show the really wild show um and she's also been a, a creative writer, uh, lecturer. Um, she continues to work also with, with young people with creative writing and exploring kind of activism and nature connection issues through writing. Um, so if you if you have kids, or actually even if you don't have kids, um, check out Nicola's books. They really are extraordinary. Um, I'll link to stuff in the show notes. Um, so yeah, it was really, um, Nicola has this amazing energy. She's just someone I could listen to for hours, to be honest. So um, it was such a treat to have this conversation. I'm going to cut straight to it. Um, this is episode 42 of the Spaceship Earth podcast with writer and activist Nicola Davis. Right, Nicola, welcome to the Spaceship Earth podcast. Lovely to be here. Yeah, great, great to uh, great to get the time to, to have a chat and... Um, Whereabouts are you on the spaceship Earth right now? Just because everyone's all over the place. Um, I'm in. I'm at my desk, which is in the corner of uh, our big uh, open plan living space, because I live in a converted chapel in um, in West Wales in Pembrokeshire. So if I stepped outside my kitchen door now, I could see the sea, and in the morning I can see the island of Grassholm because it it catches the light uh, when the sun comes up. Beautiful. And you is because um, you've moved there not so is it quite recently? But you've but you yeah we moved we actually managed to move in the middle of lockdown right. Um, but I moved from um, the Brecon Beacons, so I've been in Wales, which is actually my 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 country, my family, my my ancestors are all Welsh. Yeah, I come from a long line of miners and steel workers on the Gower, 
Um, so I'd been living in, in Wales for sort of 10 years before I finally moved down to Pembrokeshire in May this year. Amazing. And so we connected this year um, through your, through the, through the promise, through your, your book, the promise and the, the animation, which is just, just released a week ago. Um, All very exciting. Very exciting. Um, and, uh, all, all kinds of stuff's, um, emerging through that, which is great. And we can, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that. Um, but you're, you know, you, it's funny as I was just sort of, you know, thinking about this conversation and I didn't realize you'd written, I knew you'd written a lot of books. I didn't realize you'd written as many as I think you've written. Um, but you are, you know, you've got, you've got, you are, you do many things, don't you? I mean, you're a writer, you trained as a zoologist, you're an, in my eyes, you're a, you're a, an activist you're a creative activist i would call you you're an educator you do a lot of work with schools you've been in tv and and radio and media i mean you've 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 packed it in right (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i think to a spent you know there's a there's a you know for anybody who's a mum there there is a a good quantity of years when mostly what you're doing is keeping on top of the biology experiments at the back of the fridge and ironing school shirts in front of crap television on a Sunday night. Uh, so I did that quite a lot, uh, uh, as well as all the other things. And of course, it's a terribly long time since I was doing the Really Wild Show and uh, Superbods and all those things I did for children's television uh, when my kids were really tiny. Uh, and my kids are now, you know, in their thirties, mm. so it really does feel like another life. Because what was that? Was that um, was that mid eighties? Was that or? Yeah, I guess. Uh, I think I stopped doing television sort of in the middle of the 90s. It kind of gradually petered out. Yeah. Um, and I, as I started, as I started writing, but it took me, it took me a good 10 years to kind of get my writing career uh, to a state where, where I could actually live on it. Yeah. Um, and I had, I had a job as a, uh, a part-time post as a creative writing lecturer you know thank god for creating right creative writing courses yeah. because they do they do keep <laughs> they do keep writers um you know able to pay their mortgage and that was a that was a bath, bath spa wasn't it yeah it was at bath spa and actually it was lovely and it 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 taught me a lot about writing and and made me some really good friendships and also lovely to see my students now people who were my students being very successful and some of them successful in the area of uh, writing stories about nature and wildlife and conservation you know jill lewis was a student of mine and now she's you know she's a great fantastic advocate for the natural world and particularly for um uh, fighting uh, the uh, what happens on grouse moors and the illegal killing of raptors on grouse moors so what was your, you know, I'd love to get a little bit of context, a little bit of your story before we sort of get into now and obviously all the the work and the writing you're doing, because there is a very strong, you know, looking through your your work, there is a really, there's obviously a very, very strong um, sense of nature connection, but there's a lot of work on sort of environmental injustice and, and obviously social injustice as well that you tackle a lot in your work. But tell me how you... Tell us a little bit about the story into, into I guess, your connection with the natural world and your, you know, because it was, you studied zoo, zoology at university. So it's quite something obviously was there for you from 
from a pretty young age. Could you tell us a little bit about the journey into it and how you got to sort of start writing? Well, I, I don't really remember it. I mean, I don't, there wasn't a time when I wasn't completely captivated and fascinated by the natural world. But I think that's something that, that many, many, well, I would say all children have in them. Um, but because I think I was a very solitary child, I I engaged with that in a way that perhaps children with siblings or playmates around them might not have done. So the garden, the countryside, um, my parents lived in lots of different places as I was growing up. Um, those were my, that was my, that was my companionship really. Uh, so the natural world was my, my, my kind of social life really. Um, and so it became very, very important to me. And, uh, it, you know, it was it was just a natural step for me to study zoology um, as I when I went to university. And I did, you know, I did fantastic. I was really lucky. I did fantastic field work, working on boats, studying whales of various sorts, um, humpbacks and sperm whales and, uh, and blue whales. Um, and the writing came about because... When I, I I dropped off the bottom of academia when Mrs Thatcher cut grants for primary research, um, and I realised that I that it wasn't for me. I couldn't stay in it, and I joined the Natural History Unit and worked in television for a while and didn't really get on with that well either. <laughs> so I had a series of failed careers behind me. Really, um, I just didn't have sharp enough elbows to work in television. Um, and I, I started writing children's books really almost by accident. Um, and because I had grown up with parents who, particularly my father, absolutely loved words, you know, I would sit on the edge of the bath as a little child and he'd be reciting Keats to me. And, and I have to say, you know, not he was a working class boy, but he was a working class Welsh boy. And the value of language, particularly of poetry in Welsh culture, is, as I'm sure you know, absolutely enormous. Mm. And so I grew up with that. So, so coming to writing actually felt really like coming home, like something I had been doing in my head my whole life. Um, so it, it, it felt very – sorry about my emails. No, pinning, but, so it, it, it felt – it felt really natural, um, even though establishing myself professionally in that world was a struggle, as I think it is for many writers. You know, it's just a it's just a hard place to uh, to 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 get your voice out there in a way that's kind of um, financially viable. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I was I was, I was walking my uh, youngest daughter to school this morning, and we were talking about. I was talking about. I was going to chat to you today and she was she'd been talking about some of your different books that she's read at school and um, and I said oh you, what would you what would you ask Nicola and she said well I'd like I'd like to know when when did she know that she wanted to write books for children like what was it oh, what a great so, question. Um, <laughs> so I thought I'd ask you that <laughs> well I've written I've written for adults as well as children much much more obviously mm. for for children um when did I know when I started doing it, actually, I started doing it and discovered it and discovered it as a thing 
at a thing that was right in my heart and felt like it had always been there. Uh, and the reason I write for children is, well, lots of reasons, really. Um, it's, it's more creative. It's freer. Um, the people who work in children's writing are nicer than the people who work in grown-up writing, I have to say. But actually, fundamentally, because I'm eight on the inside. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, I have a lot of friends now who, are, who, who write for children. And all of them will tell you that they are not grown up on the inside. My, my great, great friend, Julia Green, with whom I, uh, I worked as a lecturer in Bath Spa and who uh, has only recently stopped um, running a fantastic, fantastic MA in writing for young people, which now has strings of sort of famous alumni. Julia and I have spent a lot of time talking about writing. Julia is 14 on the inside and I made it. She writes for the age group that, that, uh, that her heart belongs to. Uh, and I write primarily for the age group uh, to which my heart belongs. Amazing. I mean, you've, you've written, I think it's, it's over 60 books. Is that right? Do you know somebody, I've, I've been saying blithely over 60. <laughs> and uh, Simon Fisher, who is part of Family Bookworms Wales, who are wonderful uh, reviewers and advocates as a family of children's literature, very sweetly <laughs> rewrote my wiki entry the other day. Love him. And um, he says, I've written over 80. Wow. I know. I've done. Anyway, lots. Yeah. And you've written, I mean, and you've written about, I mean, I, I was, you know, again, search, but I mean, you've written about bats, you've written about dolphins, bears, whales, ponds, trees, sharks, turtles, bears, birds, dogs, monsters, and, and lo loads more. How, can you just tell us about that a little bit about your sort of writing flow? Like where do, where, you know, I mean, I want to get into the promise because I'd love, I'd love, you know, I'd love you to tell a little well, bit about how that one. Very goes, but, often. Yeah. Very often you, when you're researching one book, you'll find the beginning of another. You'll find the thread of another. Um, and sometimes, I mean, you mentioned the pond. The pond actually isn't about ponds. It's about grief. It's about death, isn't it? It's about losing something in the family. The yeah. And how a family recover. Uh, and I am very, very interested in, um, I, I, I'm fascinated by the biology and I'm desperate to communicate the delight of learning about the intricacies of the natural world. But I am also very, very interested in human relationships with nature and how fundamental that is to our health and well-being and how we ignore that at not just at the peril of you know, our planet, which is there in the background at a terrible looming cloud, but also at the peril of our own emotional well-being and of the very fabric of our humanity. And so actually that, that book, The Pond, came about because I had written a book about the birth of a disabled child, illustrated by um, Kathy Fisher, who's now become a very close friend. And Kathy was exploring images of ponds for another book that she was working on. I saw them and um, began to think about this pond and how you would build it in the back garden. And then that idea of a hole in the back garden became, in my head, an emotional hole. The emotional hole that is left in your life when someone you love has died. 
uh, and that's how that story was born. And and you know, the the stories of stories are all intertwined. It's through quite- my life, through things I research, through things I find out, and also my interior emotional life. It's, it sounds like quite an emergent process for you when when you write, because I, you know, there's certain you know things that, like you say, you're coming across, or something that's quite spontaneous, almost that that might lead to some form of expression. Because I remember, like the, you know, I read about the um, the book. Um, actually, my daughter was telling me that as well. The day, the day war came. The day war came. Yeah. yeah, and that was that was quite a that was a sort of a response, right? To yeah, well, I had I had been listening to reports uh, about Syria, and basically getting more kind of angry and um, feeling very powerless. Um, and I had started to write something about uh, the experience of war from the point of view of a child, which felt like kind of a really dodgy thing to do. You know, I mean, I what do I know? Um, but I, my father fought in the Second World War uh, and saw and experienced things from which he never recovered and talked a little bit about that. So I felt I had a tiny bit of personal connection with that. And then the British government refused entry to those 3,000 child refugees, unaccompanied child refugees, children who had experienced some of the worst trauma that is possible for human beings to experience and who were utterly alone in the world. And our government said, we won't help you. We don't care about you. And that made me feel physically sick. <laughs> and so I, I wrote the text of the day war came very, very quickly. Um, and I finished it in the morning. I sent it to, uh, at the time, the, the Guardian had a children's, a specific children's uh, aspect to its website. I sent it to the editor, who I knew a little bit there, and she, bless her heart, put it up on the Guardian website that day. Um, and we had a, a, a Jackie Morris, uh, my friend, and Petter Haratschek, another wonderful illustrator friend, both did pictures of empty chairs to go with that at the time. It was just a poem. It wasn't a picture book text, really. Um, and then we had an influx of, of empty chairs. And, and I realised that my subconscious had invented, had come up with this idea of an empty chair, which is incredibly powerful image. Um, and that, long story short, had a small role to play in helping Alf Dubs uh, fight for the cause of unaccompanied child refugees. And you, and you connected up, didn't you, with help refugees? Um, yeah, I did. I did in the end, and of course, the, by that stage, we had we had Rebecca Cobb's wonderful illustrations, and it was a uh, and it was a picture book, and uh, we did two two launch events for both the hardback and the paperback um, to raise funds for help refugees. And actually, I then connected with another refugee organisation um, uh, called Refugee Trauma Initiative, who work directly with the most traumatised uh, refugee families and in unaccompanied children. Uh, and they sent me some real stories, which I then turned into sort of um, poem texts. So they would have some short pieces of text that they could then use in their uh, in their communications and their campaigns. So real, I mean, really emergent like, process, right? Because it's very spontaneous how you just responded to that that issue 
that was well you know some of it some of it is spontaneous some of it is a lot more kind of um, laborious (laughs) you know i've just written uh, i say just written earlier this year i wrote finished writing two or three texts um about real zoological stories connected directly with climate change Uh, and those are very much trickier uh, to write because you have to incorporate the the actual factual material but you also have to um, have to have a narrative you have to have a really good strong narrative um, on which to hang those facts and that's that's just technically hard um, and those texts take a long time they take a really really long time mm. um, and i'm writing something now the thing i'm in the middle of writing now is actually a young adult novel um with very strong environmental themes um and obviously you know it's sixty thousand, seventy thousand. it's going to be quite long um and you know that just takes time, and I'm I'm not quick, you know. I'm really not quick. I rewrite, I change, I fiddle about with things. I can spend a whole morning fiddling about the same sentence, which is a bit of a handicap. But you know, it all takes time. How do you? Because I, I I guess the other thing that sort of comes through a lot of your work is this is often at least I would say sort of this you know the imaginal realm. So you opening up your imagination to particularly to make to help people make more of these connections to the natural world to themselves to their relationships with with the living world and at the same time you know i guess over the years and as as the alarm bells get get louder you and the issues are becoming more and more you know in our faces and obviously you're sort of in you know you're i guess you're done you know you're in this kind of tension quite a lot of the time aren't you about the sort of realities of what we're living in and then how and then how to also help kind of open up or you know open up this curiosity or this this imagination this connection to this extraordinary world that we're part of and how do you find that sort of working with the sort of do you, do you know what i mean this kind of um well, it's, it, yeah so it's it, it's a really difficult balance it's a really difficult balance for all of us to maintain forward moving action positive mm. thinking in the face of relentless ghastliness but because I'm trained as a biologist, I, I can see outside a little bit that tiny sliver of time in which I exist because I know about the time that's come before, biologically speaking, not in terms of human history, but in terms of human, uh, evolution of life on this planet. Uh, and I can also envisage a time after. So I know that nature is resilient and um, adaptable and that for all that we have done to our supportive, lovely, beautiful web of life on this planet, we are also of it and part of it and therefore adaptable and resilient too. Um, So I can't give in to despair. I sometimes feel close to it, but I can't give into it because of that that perception I have of the resilience of biology. Also because I'm eight on the inside and eight-year-olds are very hopeful. Um, And also because despair is an indulgence, actually. 
that we as advocates for uh, our planet, um, we as the people who try to give everybody else a wake-up call and remind them that however urban you think you are, <laughs> you're still dependent on the ocean, you're still dependent on the sky, you're still dependent on the land and all the life that surrounds it. Um, I, I think that despair is, is I, actually it makes me cross now when I hear people say, I was at dinner the other night with some people who were saying, oh, it's all hopeless, you know, it's all, you know, I not, can't do anything about it. It makes me furious because actually it's lazy. It's really easy to say, oh, we're all going to hell in the handcart. You know, I'll just jump on a flight to Marrakesh and have a nice time. Thanks very much. I, I, I just think it's, it, it, it's, it's nonsense. Um, and we have to fight. Um, and... Even if we go down, we have to go down fighting. I'm totally with you. What's your sense? Because you do a lot of work. You know, obviously, you write. Your, you know, a lot of your writing is is for kids, not exclusively. But you do a lot of work with schools as well in write creative writing. What's your sense of where you know the kids and the schools that you're interacting with? Because I, 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 you know, as you know, as a, as a parent as well, I'm often. The despair I tend to have is in my own head for just for you know for them <laughs> or thinking about you know yes. and also more yeah, and more absolutely. and more to do with I just feel like they're just so overloaded with just you know bad news after bad news after sort of horrific yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree I mean I think there are an awful lot of parents who are parents and teachers and schools and education uh, are also overwhelmed uh, and overwhelmed with despair and the reaction to that is is not to talk about it and not to discuss it and try to shield children from it whereas actually what we we need a really really fundamental readjustment well of everything obviously but certainly of education and what we teach children about the world and how they operate in it the education system is still tailored to turning out fodder for a capitalist unsustainable capitalist economic model uh, and obviously that's not good for anybody least of all the children who are going to be on the very pointy end of what will come about in the next 50 to 100 years um they need to be educated and prepared for that, which means they need to be divergent thinkers, they need to be creative thinkers, they need to make use of all the ideas that have come before them in human history, and they need to be able to come up with some bloody good ones for the future. And they need practical skills. You know, I don't really want to say that the most important thing one can teach children now is how to shoot straight, but if we don't get our act together pretty shortly that will be a really really good skill to teach your children to, to, talking of shooting there was um there was a book you wrote um which struck me um what was it called it was called um was it the uh, the, the flying free flying free yeah oh yeah 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 <laughs> yeah the reason yeah. is you talk about shooting it's about it's about a, about a um, the boy who gets the air rifle, right? And he shoots a yeah. He gets <clears> given <throat> an air rifle, and um, he thinks he wants to be big and tough yeah. and shoot things. 
and he ends up winging a sparrowhawk um, and is immediately filled with terrible remorse um, and then brings that sparrowhawk back from injury to being a free-flying bird and through that discovers things about mm. himself strengths in himself he didn't realize he had I, re- I really connect with i mean i haven't read the book but when i read the thing because i had that i had an experience like that as a as a young boy i yeah oh, so really? i had a, wow. i was probably 11 maybe um and i had an air rifle uh, i used to live out in the middle of nowhere and and um and a friend of mine at school he had one as well and we were you know using it to shoot cans and bottles and god knows what else but then, of course, you know, it, you move to seeing wildlife. And I remember shooting this pigeon. Um, and I can remember you know, I can remember pulling the trigger. And I can remember the pigeon being, you know, it was probably, I don't know, you know, 60, 70 meters away in this tree. And I remember the thud. And I remember this thing spinning out of the tree. And I remember, like, feeling utterly mortified. And, um, yeah. you know, just... Uh, it was it was it was so visceral i can still feel it you know that 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 feeling of what have i done you know i've taken some life which i thought was i don't it was almost like it was almost like you when you do it you're not even sure that you're gonna you're gonna hit this thing and what's gonna happen um and i did the same thing a month later with a rabbit with the same this was a, a guy i used to go to school with who was really into shooter he was really into sort of like you know we've got to you've got to kill things and this rabbit um it squeaked you know the, the the sound it made when we shot it um and i burst into tears um and i can remember that um we did actually take the rabbit to the butcher and he did give us a couple of quid i'm not that sure that made it any better but um i never did it again but it was a very it was a real again a real moment of connection it sounds weird but uh, through, through no no uh, no absolutely i totally i totally get that and in a way that kind of um it's kind of a metaphor for for our whole modern relationship with the natural world is that we are constantly shooting bullets at the natural world, but we are so removed from their impact that we don't have that visceral response. And of course, if we did have that connection, that visceral response, if we actually saw right in front of us now what the consequences of our actions were, things would be very different. Um, And also we have a whole, in the West, we have a whole cultural context that has removed us from a sense of being part of nature. And it's actually what I'm writing about in this novel now, um, this process of removal. Um, and, And actually, you know, perhaps the most important thing that we as a species, well, our section of the species, because of course there are plenty of indigenous people around the world who already know that they are part of the natural world. That's the lesson we need to relearn. Yeah. Uh, And I think it's an attitudinal shift that really needs to come about. I mean, I'm, you know, I sometimes feel bad that I don't do more active campaigning. You know, I have a, a daughter who's a very, very, very active campaigner in uh, has done some wonderful things with Extinction Rebellion. Um, and I don't do that kind of active campaigning anymore. But I kind of feel my skill set is 
to help reconnect, is to help this attitudinal shift. Um, and, and, you know, we all do what we can. Um, and I, I console myself with, a, with a, a motto that was on the wall of our downstairs loo when I was a kid growing up. Uh, and it used to irritate me enormously as a, as a child and adolescent, but I, I I remember it now very clearly. And it said, "Little drops of water, little grains of sand, make the mighty ocean and the promised land." And um, and you know, we all have to just try and do our little bit. And if everybody does their little bit, then yeah, what. We are and what, and what you're talking about is 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 very interesting to me because um yeah I've been exploring sort of different types of activism for quite a few years and and in this creative activism again to your point like there are there are many forms you know for some of us it's direct action putting ourselves out into the world you know protesting but there's a there are so many ways to be active on behalf of life right so there and I think that what you're speaking to at the moment is um, it's it's a big area of my, of my inquiry and sort of creative culture is trying to again um, find ways to encourage more people with creative influence to to ex- to start to explore these things more intentionally through their work because it's almost like you know many times it's like you know we just creative we do we put our creativity out into the world and you know you, people do what they want to do and but you know it's this whole you know there's no creativity on a dead planet right it's like, so it's like we're sort of we're in this point now where it feels like there's a responsibility um for more you know just to help people more understand what's going on but also to see that there are new possibilities right and new ways of of seeing the world um and yeah. i think this is such an interesting space because i think it's you know as more and more of the constructed world starts to unravel i think you know the you know these these edges maybe that many of us have been exploring are starting you know maybe they're opening up more people are starting to look towards these yeah i think that's true as as you said it's a very good word to use unravel as the world that we know and we right. think is the only world unravels then other possibilities open up i i when i w- i wrote a book called gaia warriors uh in 2009 um a, about climate change and about ways of being involved in the solution rather than being part of the problem and one of the people I interviewed for it was a fantastic guy called Mark Maslin who is professor of environmental change at UCL and actually Mark bless him kept my sanity when I was writing that book because he was the first person to say to me okay well what is our low carbon future going to look like it's going to look rather nice. It's going to look like this and like this and like this. And he said the problem with climate change activism is all they say is, we're all going to die. Nobody says, hey, look, look what it could be. Nice. Uh, And that's why in my introduction to the film of, uh, of The Promise, I said, the first step is imagining what you want it to be like. Um, And that is a really, really powerful step. And that is where creativity, imagination, storytelling have a real, um, have some traction, actually. 
have real uh, impact in the real world is encouraging people to imagine. Because, of course, all the systems that we are laboring under now do not want you to imagine anything different. Of course, they want to say you can't change because it's in their interests. Well, they think it's in their interest. Of course, it's in nobody's interest, but they think it is in their interests to keep the status quo, to not imagine anything different. Uh, and of course, that's that's you know the profoundest um, the profoundest self oppression mm. that there can be is to think that you can't even imagine yeah. something different. And so let's let's talk about the promise because because you know it was I think it was was it twenty fourteen you wrote the promise. Uh, no, I wrote it. I wrote it. I wrote it. I actually wrote it in 2010, 2010. <laughs> and then it took Laura a terribly long time to do the illustration, uh, and then it was published in 2013. Right. And and when you um, yeah, so I wrote it. I wrote it just after I had finished, pretty much very soon after I had finished writing um, uh, Gaia Warriors, which was about climate change, and so all that stuff was very kind of freshly in my head um and i i I was asked to write a picture book version of a book called the man who planted trees that many people will know uh written by jean genet in the 30s 40s i can't remember um very very powerful story written as uh, in a reportage style a novella that had enormous um impact when it was published uh, but I didn't want to steal somebody else's story uh, also I wanted a child to be at the heart of the story and I wanted it to be an urban child and I wanted it to be about urban transformation because of course that's where most people are going to be living um, you know there's a massive massive move uh, amongst humanity from rural agricultural situations to urban situations they have been since the industrial revolution and that's now accelerating even more into super cities particularly in the developing world um and i had some experience of being in cities in the developing world uh, and how very ungreen and unpleasant they can be and of course cities in the west too ungreen and unpleasant um and i wanted to write about that uh, and that's that's how that that story came about um and it came i thought about it for a long time in a very kind of diffuse sort of a way and then i just sat down one morning and it came down my arm onto the page and in two hours i had what i knew was a finished text and i knew that it was a really powerful story and and i i've seen it working in all sorts of ways in all sorts of contexts it speaks very powerfully to children who are in very bad situations um and i've seen that happening i'll just tell you one briefly i was in a school in in boston uh, uh what they call a public school over there state school in boston and uh, a child came into my session late with three minders And the other children in the class didn't react at all. It was clearly very normal. This kid had three adult minders. 
and he crawled around on the floor. Um, and he made his way to sit. I was sitting down and he leant against my shins as I was reading the promise. And I had long hair at the time. And at the end of the story, he got hold of the end of my hair, very gently tugged me down so my face was next to his. And he whispered, that story is about me. And I thought, love you, my darling. It is. Uh, and that's kind of, I wrote that story very much for children in, in bad situations to say, there's a bigger world. You won't always be a powerless child. You can have some power in that bigger world. It may not look like the sort of power that other human beings call power, but you can have it and you can take it and you can make a very, very positive effect on the world around you through engaging with the natural world rather than solely engaging with the human one. And, it, and it's such a, you know, when you read the book now and obviously now with the, you know, the animation from Chi and, but it's, it feels so, so now in terms of this, the context, doesn't it? It's like, well, hopefully, you know, I just, I, I do know, I know the story works. I know, I know it's a silver bullet mm. actually. And that sounds an arrogant thing to say, but I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm too old now not to say what I feel yeah. and what I know. I, 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 I know that story came down my arm. I was given that story by something. And um, I know that it works. And I know that if we can just get it in front of enough people, it will, as I said in my introduction, be a seed, a seed of change. So what's it like seeing seeing the book now with, you know, with the, with the animation? What's it like now? 2020, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 absolutely amazing. Um, but I had looked at the animation so much by the time it 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 went live last Friday, week ago today. I I kind of had stopped being able to really see it, and I was really anxious about it. Um, you know, I saw all the schools had signed up for it, and um, I, 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 I'd lost the ability to really see the power of it. And so it was fantastic to see the amazing, amazing responses uh, that people had to it uh, and to see, you know, whole, whole, school full, whole schools full of little kids um, planting acorns and, um, you know, really engaging practically with the environmental message that they had been presented with. And of course, now it's, it, it, it's our job now to try and um, make space for that planting in the real world so that all those little acorns that have been planted in pots end up having a, having a real home, which of course means we start to move into a much less comfortable uh, for some people, area, because of course, some um, you know, little kids planting acorns is lovely. Little kids saying, "Okay, city council, where are you going to create some green space for us to plant these acorns?" is a very different matter. So it's going to be jolly interesting. Yeah, it's 
it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, I, um, you know, I wrote a little bit about this at the start. Well, actually, just a few months into lockdown, just about like how, you know, if you were going to come out of this, um, you know, this, you know, what we, you know, all that's been revealed, you know, all the inequality that we know has existed. It's been out there, but it's suddenly it's it's been again. It's been it's been re- revealed to a huge amount more people have seen. You know what really sits underneath normal you know and the sort of suffering that that people are experiencing day by day and the idea of you know cities or urban spaces places where people are living in huge numbers where there is no natural environment you know it's been stripped out developed over you know concreted over car parked whatever it is right turned into shops um it sort of strikes me that again in in these times we're now moving into one of the best things that could be done is to you know is to bring is to you know is to create really nature rich environments for people because if you're going to have even more economic issues and you know even more uh, insecurity with work and at least make the spaces we're living in beautiful you know what I mean yeah, and absolutely. because surely absolutely. that's going to sort of soften or hold people a little bit in terms but it just it's almost like it doesn't compute with the with the powers and then the cynic in me tends to think actually is this just intentional you know the more you strip this stuff away the more it drives people to feel like you know they're worthless and you know the more they're engaged in well yeah consumerism you know absolutely yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's cynical I think that's I mean, you know, it's a question of whether you whether you believe in cock up or conspiracy, really. Uh, and some days I'm all for the cock up, and some days I'm for the conspiracy. And at the moment, with what's going on in the UK, particularly at the minute, yep, I'm down with the conspiracy. I think, uh, you know, it's entirely intentional to undermine people's sense of well being and their sense of power. It, it it works brilliantly uh, for for those who want to hold on to power, who want to hold on to wealth, to make the rest of us feel like we don't matter, we're rubbish, and we can't do anything about anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think I think that's right, and that's why I said the, the, the sort of vision, if we, you know, this, this idea of, of of thousands of children sort of looking looking for looking for land to uh, <laughs> to get their forests. Uh, uh, yeah. growing next year would be a, yeah. would be a beautiful thing and and you know not just uh, not just looking and hoping but actually quietly and powerfully demanding You're right yeah um and i i think there are some very interesting partnerships coming about between um, the film and uh, and organisations that are ready to help facilitate that. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got the Scottish launch coming up next week with a wonderful Lost Woods project and Alexandra McKenzie, off whom one could run the national grid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> honestly, she's an amazing woman. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the, there's increasing connection and synergy between between the lost words and the promise i mean jackie and i are good mates and have been good mates for many years um but the 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 impact that the lost words had on empowering people to speak up about Mm. the loss of nature 
and how important that is. Um, uh, and now with the promise and its implication of land access and land equality and nature equality, um, it, you know, that's a powerful that's a powerful creative mix, a powerful creative process with the ability to have an impact in the real world on real life. It's, it's it's incredible though, isn't it? The 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 role that you know the youngsters are sort of finding themselves playing. I was I was watching this morning on something like a I can't remember what it was on some feed, but this you know this European agricultural common agricultural policy um, thing that's being done at the moment, which again is just seems like a, a high level is just going to be about vast subsidies given again to sort of the most kind of industrial um, intensive farmers across the EU with no real, um, you know, um, um, stringent kind of environmental uh, asks within those new policies. And again, you know, you've got all these, mainly girls I see as well, but, you know, teenagers, Greta and all, you know, various others around Europe, you know, campaigning today to, to the European Parliament and, there's a bit of it where you just go, this is it's just madness. You know, it's just sort of like this is just the the sense and the sort of wisdom that's coming from the young. This sort of goes yes. back to our the indigenous piece. When would any indigenous culture ever where the young ringing the bells for the elders? It's just weird, isn't it? It's sort of I don't know, we've we've lost our way so much, I think, with uh, you know, what you've what you were speaking to earlier about this. You know, this understanding more our our place, our connection. Um, and, um, I was reading recently, I can't remember, maybe this is across many, um, indigenous cultures, but their relationship, I was reading about how for many, you know, the, the trees and plants are the elders. They're the ones that are seen as, 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 you know, having more wisdom than the human because they were here before us. (laughs) They've been here longer. There was a fantastic, um, I I very occasionally managed to catch Ian McMillan's, um, program, on Radio Three, and he had he had uh, two or three indigenous North American indigenous uh, poets um, on his program, and one of them was talking about her language, which I'm ashamed to say I can't remember the name of. Um, but in her language, it is impossible to talk about I or me without linguistically including the la- the landscape. Now, I can't even imagine what that sounds like, what that is like, but I can grasp that if that is the very linguistic structure in which you are raised and through which you articulate your thoughts to others and to yourself, your whole perception of yourself as a living thing is completely different from uh, from our yeah. perception of ourselves in our culture um I, 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 and i think exploring those uh, those those cultural and linguistic areas that are unfamiliar to us it, it is potentially um, powerful, interesting, uh, uh, and a real catalyst for change. Yeah, it's it's, it's reminding me of that is it Oren Fox's quote of 
you know, he says to to the sort of Western uh, people, you know, you're you're um, to you people, you know, um, you know, you you call nature your resources. To us, we call it our relatives. You know, um, yeah. and it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. this Absolutely. shift, isn't it? It's it, and that's the thing. What what always strikes me again, going back to sort of you know all of these, you know, these the complexity of these big issues, but actually, it's a it's a, it's a shift of as a way of seeing and thinking and being that's kind of required isn't it it's a sort of just you know there's, there's something quite could be sort of enormously transformational with a with just a shift just a, a shift of how we see ourselves in the world i know that's yeah big, yeah and, and, well, and, but it's actually quite simple yeah. as well <laughs> it, it, it is and and something for which our very nature the very fabric of ourselves as living things is really ready to receive a kind of rightness about it, even though it is unfamiliar, um, that that speaks to the core of what we are. I, I, I just this year uh, had a book published called Grow, which is about which is essentially about DNA. And um, that's the language that all life is written in. All life is written in DNA. So in every cell of our bodies, we have a, a, an encoded language that connects us right back through the billions of years of the history of our planet to the very, very, very first and simplest living things. We share that with everything that's alive. Uh, and that, that means something. That matters. Uh, and that matters and means in a way that is that can't be expressed in words because it's so fundamental. It's something that we feel and know um, and that maybe is reflected in languages of indigenous people, but isn't reflected in, in current modern languages that are used by people in this modern technological world. Yes, yeah, so, it's so it's so fascinating, and because I guess there's there's a there's a part of this where you think that where the where these you know where will these cultural shifts come from, and you know obviously there's a sense you know if that that understanding of being part of something bigger, at least in my experience with with kids as well, feels like it's you know it's it's there. It's and they understand that from a very you know, yeah. almost a meet you know it's absolutely they, they, you know, they, know, they, it. Know, they it. know it but then it's obviously you know it's kind of stripped out of us mainly through how we're taught educated yes. you know to, to, to look at the world <laughs> and to think about our place in it but i'm worried and i'm so i'm curious one of the things i'm quite curious about and again is you know people in power and as more of you know as, as we're facing more and more of these issues what is, you know it, it's there it, you know it must it must be still there in all of us but it's you know it's been hidden or, or you know yeah i'm just curious of how we might see these you know will can we imagine seeing these kind of awakenings in in, in people in power are we are they able to sort of shift their way because we're moving like you like you said you're some of the you know the writing you're looking at more and more is is exploring that that interconnection um and this this great separation that's occurred over the you know predominantly over the last few hundred years particularly um that we're somehow separate you know, from the natural world and we, we're in control of it and 
you know it's it's, it's actually it's dangerous you know we have to f- fear it as well and yeah but i think there's a couple of things to say about that the first is that um i think for the people who are most in power for the people who are most embedded in this dysfunctional wrong-headed um system which we have all been caught up with for the last couple of hundred years maybe a little bit longer than that Uh, i think to expect them to change they're too damaged they're just too damaged they're not going to change so we need to change and then we need to replace them uh so that's the first thing to say about that (laughs) the other thing to say is uh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, I think that's probably the best strategy. Anyway, the other thing I, I, I wanted to say was that um, you were saying about where will these awareness changes come from? And the one thing that human beings, well, we're bad at many things, but one thing that we're absolutely supremely bad at is is predicting our own futures. We are really, really rubbish at it. Um, you know, I don't know if you, you're probably not old enough to remember this, but when I was a kid, by the year 2000, people really, really did think that we were all going to be in space, yeah, no, dressed in palm oil, eating uh, tablets instead of meals. Yeah, my brother used to. My brother used to read two thousand AD comic. I was born in the seventies, so that, and I remember, you know, that just seemed like, you know, that was all about. Yeah, we were we were we were in spaceships, really. You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's you know, we we just really really rubbish, and that actually, on the one hand, is completely terrifying, but on the other, is very hopeful. I mean, you think, you think of how things, fifteen years ago. Nobody would have said, would have known what you what you meant if you prefixed any word with the word eco. They just wouldn't have known. And it's everywhere now. Yeah, it's true. You know, there was a thing on the radio this morning, a, a long report about biodiversity. And that's a word. I think if you look at the incidence of, you know, the same way that Jackie and Rob looked at the incidence of all these words that have been taken out of uh, the children's English dictionary. Yeah. If you if you if you look at the incidence of the word biodiversity, ten years ago, only biologists knew what that word was, and now it's gradually, gradually popping up. The awareness that we are supported by this web of life, and if we start chopping it to bits, we fall through, is beginning, the penny is beginning to drop. Now, it may drop too late, that's true, but it is dropping, it is changing. We do have the capacity to change, which goes back to what I was saying about, you know, part of change is that you can't imagine what it's going to be. You have to try and imagine what it's going to be. You have to try and go for it. And everything around you is saying, no, 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 nothing can change. We all have to stay the same. But actually, that's not true. Change change is absolutely what life is. Yeah, it's happening all the time, right? I mean, that it's is. happening all the time. You know, when you when you're when you're a biologist, you learn what the characteristics of life are. 
And one of the characteristics of life is growth and change. So actually, if you're not changing and growing in different directions and looking different and being different and behaving different, you're dead. So actually, change is something that we should absolutely embrace as being part of being truly alive. I think that's it, what is really interesting when you talk about it, because one of the things, again, um, and I think it's connected to this this story of of separation, how we see ourselves separate. But, you know, it's even I mean, I'm, I'm no biologist, so I'm probably going to make some stuff up here and you're going to go that's not true but but but, but, you know but how but you know we we, you know there's you know we there's there's a couple of things one is the sort of um uh the sort of microbiology of the human right which is that we have we have so many non we have you know we're 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 less human cells aren't we than non-human or something yeah we're fewer human cells than bacteria yeah and so, uh, you know, all of that things that we are effectively a living, you know, we are alive. We've got insiders, you know, millions of relationships going on and systems and, and, all, and, and I think there's something for me about, about this, you know, you know, you always hear, because we've sort of, from, again, this big, this separation piece where we've, you know, it's manifested through people kind of, you know, worrying constantly about dirt or, you know, or like yeah. um, spraying like sort of, you know, chemicals everywhere to sort of protect themselves. You know, there's this kind of weird, we've got to this really weird place where actually, you know, we're living things, right? We're, we're made up of, yeah. there are viruses all around us. Most of them we have no, we have no problem with them, right? It's kind of, I don't know, there's something about this kind of story of separation that's got us into some really weird spaces where we've almost forgotten that we are a living thing made up of yeah yeah and i yeah. and i wonder how much yeah. of of that you know how how much you know how yeah how we might start to explore that more culturally because i think i don't know it just feels like that's that's part of the the problem as well where we've removed ourselves from life i think that is being being culturally mm. explored actually i think there are more and more people thinking about representing that in in all sorts of different art forms um you know and and i'm continually delighted to see artists of all sorts talking about those things in their work um talking about things that as i say would only have been the uh the field of 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 trained biologists 20 years ago uh, and they're now coming into the into the sphere of so many different sorts of people and uh, with all sorts of different trainings and different backgrounds and different perspectives um, and I think that's another really really hopeful really really hopeful sign yes absolutely getting getting um bringing the bio back into our culture um yeah, the, li- the, al- the aliveness of everything. I think that's the thing, isn't yeah. it? It's, um, yeah. It's, and, um, and, and actually, what a total delight that is. Mm. You know, that one of the things that I uh, have always said when I'm talking to audiences is that the reason I want people to be interested in natural world, you know, there are lots of reasons, but actually the, the most emotionally fundamental one is that it's pleasurable it's hugely pleasurable to be able to notice the details of nature means that 
almost everywhere you go, there will be something to look at, to wonder at, to take pleasure in, and also to take comfort in. If you're looking at the natural world, you are always turned outwards. So you are turned outwards from your inner darkness. Um, and, and, you know, who goes through life without being tortured by inner darkness sometimes, mm. without being uh, living under the threat of being completely engulfed by that inner darkness? But if you are interested in the natural world, if you learn to look, you're turned outwards to the light eternally. Uh, and that that is that is such a great, great um, skill, a great trick to learn and to absorb and to take with you throughout your life. Because it means that there will always be that. Yeah. There will always, 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 everywhere be that comfort available to you if you just look it is a um it's beautiful and it is but it is it's it's um it's challenging to the to the industrial growth machine though isn't it because the more at least my some of you know my own experiences the more the more awake you are to your connection to life and your relationships to the living world the the more you are able to cope with the darkness and the you know the complexities that life throws at you and and the more you're conscious of i think i think you're you're you become more conscious of the you know the you know this this constructed world and actually what it's doing you know what i mean and maybe your 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 needs your desires for for immersing yourself that become you know they're lessened you you can start to you, you basically suss it out right you become more aware of how you, suss it, out. you, you suss it out that actually things and stuff yeah. are not what it's about and that is the most subversive thing mm. for the donald trumps of this world people who suss out then th- that things and stuff don't matter are terrifyingly yeah. subversive because if if everybody gets that, and actually increasingly people are mm-hmm. getting that, um, then they're, then they're stuffed. Then their whole edifice of trade and economics and economic models and hedge funds, all of that is just so much nonsense. Well, then we go back to like you, you know, your you know the the word eco right and in economics yeah. you, know, you know good management of the household you know, yes. you know yeah. that. good and sustainable management of our planetary exactly. household right. yeah. which is something that you know indigenous cultures absolutely knew and they knew it not in a kind of um airy fairy hippie exis- you know yeah. kind of a way they knew it because if they didn't get that message, they were dead. Yeah, right. And actually, that is where we are now on the big scale. If we don't relearn the messages that those indigenous cultures had impressed on them by the exigencies of, of, the, of nature, mm. we'll be dead. Mm. You know. And it strikes me uh, sort of the, that. The, 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 I did quite a lot of research into Inuit 
um, yeah, I saw that one of your culture books. and lifestyle yeah. for uh, for several books, and um, either it, you know, you can romanticise it. Very, very wonderful culture, uh, fantastic um, natural material-based technology, extraordinarily inventive. Tied to that very, very harsh and unforgiving environment by an absolute rope of necessity. Um, you know, you had to know what you were doing. You could not overstep the mark in that environment or you'd be dead. It was very, very tough, but it created people with enormous spiritual, emotional, intellectual resources who were very resilient. But when that rope of necessity was cut, they're stuffed. Uh, 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 and now in Inuit communities uh, across the Arctic, there is an absolute epidemic of mental illness. In, in, Canadian, um, in Canadian Inuit communities, the suicide rate amongst under 20s is 57 times the national average. And, uh, uh, and that's because their whole culture depended on that rope of necessity that tied them to nature and when that was cut yeah everything fell apart and that was like the um, the destruction of the of the buffalo right in the yeah the same, absolutely same and, and we you, think you take out the we, heart we of the culture think, yeah we we think we've cut that rope of necessity uh between us and the natural world uh, and absolutely we just stretched it and stretched it and stretched it and stretched it but it's there and it will ping us back with a terrible shock uh, uh, unless we begin to perceive that connection and pay attention to it. Hmm. Yeah, I think the more, the more, again, personally, the more I've sort of um, explored, you know, some of the some of those stories that you're speaking to and some of those realities that again we're we're not um it's not common knowledge they're not part of the inverted commas histories that we're taught or but the more you understand like you know looking at you know the thousands of years that those cultures have lived and created extraordinary intelligent operating systems you know from food yeah. and health and agriculture you know all kinds of but completely in harmony <laughs> um and you think what's what damage we've done in a few hundred years um and 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 again that story of seeing that you know that story that that we've sort of flattened was you know was um primitive and tragic and you know not um and and, and again you you start to see i think this is this really interesting piece about and you know that story of the eagle and the condor that you know that actually this this um prediction of you know the eagle was the bird that represented the sort of um the masculine the masculine kind of um spirit and uh, mechanistic and science driven and very rational logical whereas the condor represented the uh the people of the south the feminine the intuitive um 
and this this story that was told a few hundred years ago that you know the 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 the, the people of the north represented by the eagle would would come and dominate the world uh, and the con the people of the south and the condor would would almost you know come to a point of extinction and then something you know the world would be at this point of um uh yeah collapse i guess and 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 the two cultures came together um so the sort of you know the western rational scientific mind with the intuitive more feminine spirit um connected with the more than human world and actually it's in that it's in that combination that we might find this new possibility and i love that yeah. i love that because again yeah. you know we're living in this kind of divisive culture and polarized and and actually we need we need all of these kind of ways of being and thinking right or we need to sort of hold them all really and um, yeah yeah and work with yeah. Them. hold them all put them into combination yeah. and come up with some new stories yes amazing um i just wanted to talk about poo to finish off with <laughs> Talking Good about, subject. <laughs> just, just because it's such a great subject, and you've written a book about it, and uh, um, I just, yeah, it's brilliant, and everyone loves, loves, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a key well, it's, thing. It, it, can you just, can we talk about poo for a bit? Is that right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I always have to talk about poo. <laughs> um, it's kind of where my my zoological career started. I, I, the, the very first job I had before I went to university, I was an intern for the what was then uh, the Wildfowl Trust, is now the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust. Oh, yeah, I know them. Uh, and I was helping with the study of geese. And my first job was collecting goose poo on a Scottish salt marsh. As, um, as you do. And we used to, uh, as you do, to look at um, energy flow through the whole salt marsh ecosystem um, and uh, particularly through the barnacle geese that were living there. Um, it's, it, poo is a, a fantastic tool for finding out about things. I, I, I studied bats. I did a, a, a PhD, which I'm ashamed to say I never finished. Um, and I studied bat feeding ecology and I collected bat poo and spent two years of my life looking down a binocular microscope at insect parts in bat poo. And it was fascinating um, studying uh, studying whales. You know, sperm whales are down there in the darkness. You can't actually see exactly what species of squid they're taking, but they poo out the beaks when you when they're at the surface, and you can scoop them up uh, and analyze them and see exactly what it is that's that, that's feeding them down there in the dark where you can't find them. Um, who is a, a really, really fantastic tool for looking at animal behavior, yeah. for looking at animal distribution, for looking at territories, for looking at, you can look at the DNA in poo and look at relationships between animals. It's, it's a great biological tool. Uh, and I wrote that book really as a, 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 as a way of saying to children, these are the different ways that you can study animals. You can be a detective. Uh, and poo is one of the things, one of the clues that you can, use to unravel all these fantastic uh these fantastic stories from the natural world why did why did my dog i've got a pointer and she loves to eat uh cow 
cow poo, like anything, you know, when you're out. And she clearly really yes. wants it. What what is what is what's going on? Now, I think I don't know if wolves do it, but I expect they do. I think there are two things. I think first of all, there may be nutrients in there that carnivore guts don't have access to uh, and that they get from um, the herbivore gut, mm. which, of course, has a very different bacterial flora. I think that's one thing. And the other thing is if you eat and roll in the poo of animals that you are then going to try and catch, you smell like them. Ah. Um, so when you're hunting them and you make a mistake of being – the wrong end of the wind from them and your smell is carried on yeah. the wind you're slightly more likely to 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 get round their detection systems and to be successful in your hunt interesting but the other thing of course that dogs do is that they read each other's poo yes you know that's a, a piece of dog poo for a dog a of, is a lot of intel a lot of intel in there isn't there yeah oh yeah i mean and and the other thing about smell which is really interesting and really unique amongst senses because all other senses are giving you um, immediate information about what is happening now but poo tells you what happened several hours ago or even weeks ago so it's giving you uh, it's giving you a timeline it's investigative uh, with that information. <laughs> brilliant I love that. Actually, it's funny as you talk about this as well. I just saw something this morning about uh, I can't remember. Sorry, but they were saying that um, some scientists have been looking at um, testing uh, uh, sewage for COVID. Oh yes, yeah, for, for COVID. Yeah. Great idea. But did you hear the other thing? And I, I really, and I suspect this isn't being well funded because nobody's going to make any money out of it. But the 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 most Probably the cheapest way to do um, testing is with dogs. So um, dogs have been used for a long time. Trained dogs have been used for a long time in the diagnosis of certain cancers because people smell different. Uh, and there is a great body of scientific evidence to show that this is very accurate. Um, and... The scientists involved in this particular piece of research have discovered that COVID has a smell and that dogs can detect it. A single dog can monitor 250 people in an hour and test, essentially test them for the presence of COVID. Amazing. This is where the, so this is where the that's where yeah. we, you know, and and where has the 12 billion? that this government has spent on track and trace gone. How many dogs could you have trained for that? You could train a lot of dogs yeah. for that. You could have a dog on every dog in every household. Yeah. Um, you could. Well I suspect the the um, the dog research which is going on at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine or Tropical Medicine Hygiene, never remember which way around it is. Um, a chap called Professor Logan is doing it. Uh, and I suspect that research is not being publicised. Or funded because no big chemical company is going to get a backhander from that. Yeah. Well, yeah. there we have it. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, um, 
what what's coming up? I mean, I mean, you know, what what, what should I mean? Obviously, we're going to link out to all the promise work, and um, and I'll link out to your sites. People can, you know, people haven't yet come across your work. Although I'm, I can't believe that people haven't come across your work because you're so prolific. But what what else is coming up? Or was there anything you'd like to share that, um, yeah, that people could look out for or connect with? Well, I've got um, I've had quite a few things out this year. Uh, and because of uh, because of COVID, I haven't you know they haven't really been um, they haven't really had uh, as much attention as they normally would have done. So I've got this book, Grow, which is about uh, DNA for little kids. Um, I've got another one which is about um, migration, about um, the South African of uh, South American diaspora to North America, but actually all of that framed within the story of a an injured albatross and a boy who finds the albatross at sea um but the and and i've got my first um my very first self-illustrated book last which is a story of a white rhino um based on the real story of the last northern white rhino uh and i've got a story about bullying illustrated by uh, lovely, lovely Kathy Fisher, who I mentioned earlier, um, about a little Japanese girl who starts in a new school and is bullied uh, and gets round the bullying in a really, really fantastic, beautiful, creative way. Um, so there's lots of things. There's lots of things that have come out this year, but the thing that I'm working on now is the longest novel that I've worked on in a decade, I think, um, uh, and hopefully it's going to address. <laughs> Uh, all of the things that we've talked about today uh, in terms of um, indigenous sensibility uh, and sustainability uh, and how that awareness needs to be the new awareness that we all have to take us forward um, into a, a more hopeful uh, a more hopeful future. Amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, just thank you for everything you do. Your work's extraordinary and your energy and oh, what you're putting out into the world you. is just, yeah, it's incredible. And I, I, it's been, a, it's been a real treat to, um, you know, just to, just to do a little bit of collaboration around the, the launch of the film and, um, and, uh, yeah, I just, um, it's great. Thank you for having the time, taking the time out of your no, it's lovely. Like a, like a nice little holiday this afternoon. <laughs> so I, I always, cl- I always close, I always close this. Well, you know, this is the, the uh, inspiration for this show, the Spaceship Earth, with this idea of becoming crew on the Spaceship Earth. What does that mean for you right now? Wow. Um, it means telling stories, really. Um sharing stories sharing stories about uh, about ourselves uh, and sharing stories about the other lives on our planet human beings have been very very good about we're good at talking about ourselves you know as i have just demonstrated over the last hour i'm very good at talking about myself but actually we need to be better at telling stories about the other lives with which we share our planet because we are crew we are the crew we are the ones who are who are um, 
currently trying to steer and drive. But actually, we need to really, really pay attention to the stories of, of the other organisms that are down in the engine room uh, and in the passenger seats and tell their stories too. Amazing. Thank you so much. You're incredibly welcome, my dear. Um, Thank you. And um, yes, well, we'll be in touch. Thank you. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nicola Davies. And um, I certainly did. Uh, do you check Nicola's work out do check out The Promise the animation I'll drop that in the uh, in the show notes you can find it on um, the BBC you can find it on YouTube you can find it all over the place but I'll drop it in it's short it's like seven minutes uh, well worth watching it's so of this moment uh, it's ridiculous um, but yes and um, thanks for listening I uh, I do appreciate it um, if you like what you've heard if you like the show um, give us a rating if you can on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to you'll take a few seconds and it will help more people find the show which is always nice to get more listeners um, or share it with anyone you think might like it um, if you've got anything that's come up for you during this do reach out you can get me on uh, dan at the spaceship.earth drop me a mail or uh, we're on Instagram um uh, at thespaceship.earth um, it's always lovely to get any feedback or thoughts uh, on on the show um, so on that um, look after yourselves uh, and uh, thanks again for listening until next time peace and out peace and out